0: hi everyone welcome to the chris is enthusiastic but has really bad allergies episode of connect this we have a special fun episode this is uh getting back to our some of our roots where we're digging into a specific issue uh we have been i have been wanting to do this for two years uh so i'm gonna introduce our special guest in a second but let me start off with travis carter from usi fiber has shaved about as long ago as i have welcome <laughs>
1: Well, I was, so apparently there's a November thing where you don't shave. I was going to see if I could actually pull it off. So you're just going to like,
0: practice in September or what? I, I didn't
1: want to be that one guy where it's all splotchy and looks terrible. I, I want to end up at the end of November looking cool, like Doug. So nice. <laughs> Kim McKinley from utopia
0: fiber. Welcome muted, but, uh, showing off something there.
1: Oh gosh. I have my cat scarf on today. Awesome.
2: I'm, not, I'm not a crazy cat lady at all. But thank you, Chris. I, I, I know where the mute button is now again.
0: And we have Doug Dawson, who is the uh, professional truth weigher today. Welcome.
3: Oh, and you know what? In honor of Travis, I'm going to let my beard go until December. We'll just see how big it gets.
0: Excellent. I'm, I'm excited to see that. We are talking today about the history of LTE with Spencer Sevilla. Welcome, Spencer. Do you want to give a quick background on, uh, on why we should think
2: that you know anything about this stuff? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Hi, um, happy to be here. Um, so, as Chris mentioned, my name is Spencer. I um, actually, my first slide is a bit of about me. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll come to that then. We'll hold that in
0: anticipation. In the meantime, I'll just say that you are the person that got the tribal broadband boot camps going, uh, and uh, you and I are both rocking our our tribal broadband bootcamp shirts today from Hoopa uh, Valley. Oh yeah and uh and so you're one of the instructors that uh, we regularly use and um and you've been doing this for a long time in a lot of places
2: that's that's correct yeah it's been been doing this stuff for quite a while Cool.
0: So we're going to start with that in a second. It's going to we're going to have basically a MST3K for those of you who remember Mystery Science Theater 3000, um, where Travis, Kim, Doug and I are going to be occasionally interrupting perhaps or, or commenting on as Spencer goes through some of the history of LTE. Uh, and, uh, we're going to get a a good sense of it. And the goal is not to show off everyone to everyone, how, how funny we all are, but, but really to I think like maybe even pop in a couple of anecdotes or cool pieces of history or whatever. Um, but the goal is to really talk about like how we got here with LTE, what problems is it trying to solve and setting us up for a future discussion where we'll talk about where it is today and where it's going, perhaps with yet another special guest or two. Cool. Uh, while we're we're doing this, just for the note, um, we talked on previous shows about the FCC, and it looks like by the time this show is over, the Federal Communications Commission will have five commissioners on it for the first time in the Biden administration. Uh, Anna Gomez is sailing through. Uh, I believe uh, is waiting on the final confirmation vote, but has already uh, survived multiple votes. Has received the support of I believe all the Democrats and a few Republicans, and it seems like nothing is in the way. Although apparently, uh, Ted Cruz is talking a lot right now about how the FCC is going to destroy the internet by regulating it like a utility. So um, it's going to be
3: right. It's going to be regulated by five o'clock. That's my bet.
0: Right. It'll be heavily regulated by five uh, o'clock, which means it will be it will go back to being um, uh, five dollars per month to use. Uh, It will work all of the time, and uh, it will um, uh, cost a lot of money to visit websites uh, outside of your area code. So. Unfortunate. But, but. but
2: didn't we have a bet of one we would get the fifth FCC commissioner? We did, and first? I'm winning
0: it. Um, I'm pretty sure that I'm about to win that bet. <laughs> and I'm winning it. Okay. Do
1: we
2: hey, I've won one.
1: I've, I, give me the one, you know? <laughs> He's a 100% lost, but he got this one right so far. Okay. <laughs> I love it. I'm excited to be out of the three digits
0: in terms of the percentage of things I get wrong. So... <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, right. that's uh, in a perfect score almost, huh? <laughs> I am going to also, I should note um, that ordinarily we are produced by Rai and uh, he does a lot of cool things. Uh, right now, a cool thing he's doing is vacation. So we don't have him today. I'm running behind the scenes. So if there's any weird shenanigans, uh, it's on me. I'm about to launch the presentation, I think. There we go. All right. All right. So, all right, Spencer. We can now see your first slide. If you'd like to launch into this, um, I'll, also, uh, if people want to throw anything into the chat, into the, um, uh, into the comments, um, you know, if you're on the YouTube streaming site or Facebook or LinkedIn, I think, I think we can see all those. So, um, please do throw uh, any comments into the chat, and uh, we'll address them as we go through. But, uh, Spencer, let's knock people's socks off with the history okay. of E.
2: Let's do it. Final caveat on the chat is I cannot see anything except the slide that I'm presenting. So um, you guys will have to like, you know, throw popcorn and yell them out to me or whatever. Um,
0: oh, I will do that.
2: Wonderful, wonderful. Okay. So my name's is Spencer. Um, I always try to start off with the most honest about me's. Um, I did my undergrad at UC Davis. I studied computer engineering. I lived in a dome and I loved it very much. Um, that was mostly what I did in undergrad worked for Apple for a little bit as an engineer in the kernel, did not like doing that as much. So I went to UC Santa Cruz for graduate work. Um, Also, again, computer science. I got a doctorate but spent most of my time surfing and building tree houses. Um, Towards the end of my time at UC Santa Cruz, I started dating a clown. She moved to to Seattle. I followed her up there. We're now engaged. Um, As a result of this, I had to find work. So I ended up doing, um, I joined the University of Washington, first as a postdoc and then as a research scientist, and now I'm loosely around, but I do a lot of work independently consulting. And as generally as a warning for good or for bad, I tend to be a bit of a tech skeptic. This is not a traditional like, you know, um, living in Silicon Valley and loving it type story. I'm generally trying to do other wonderful things with my life. Um, But despite this, we've also done a lot of technical stuff. when I went to, I did my graduate work, I got really interested in wireless networks and, you know, the whole wireless mesh stuff, right? Where you can have like my phones talking to my laptops, talking to like some other thing. We're going to build the internet this way. And um, that stuff is still interesting, but I think is really, really hard and is not what we're going to be talking about. Because um, around the time that I moved to Seattle, I met Curtis Heimerl, who's a professor at the University of Washington. He had been doing kind of small-scale, like, off-grid cellular networks in various parts of the world. Um, I got super psyched. I joined his lab. We did this in Indonesian Papua. There's a picture of me and another grad student, Matt Johnson, and the local community tech expert, Mr. Ibel. And um, so we have been kind of working on cellular open-source stuff since about, I would say, 2016, because we launched the network in 2017. And um, since then, I've been doing a lot of cellular stuff for quite some time. I've worked in Indonesia and in Oaxaca. I've done a lot of work up in the Canadian Arctic. As Chris mentioned, I've done a lot of teaching in, um with respect to tribal America, we launched the tribal broadband boot camps. Um, and so I've been working on basically just all sorts, all forms of internet access, usually community owned or municipal municipality owned. And in this process, just by virtue of having worked on it for a while, I've learned a ton about LTE. I had to teach myself a lot of it. It was very unintuitive. And so I love kind of just sharing a lot of the context that I've just gathered over the years of working on kind of a bunch of open source open source software and just open source networks. And so uh, what I wanna share for this is, we'll do a little bit of background about kind of the internet and the telephone systems that used to be separate. Then we're gonna start talking, we'll just go through kind of cell phones, it's gonna be the majority of the, the focus and then you just kind of throughout this, I think there's a question of like, why am I here? Why should we care about any of this? Um, Which is always a really valid question. So that's kind of what I'm trying to keep it relevant, but you know, chime in Riff, there's lots of room for anecdotes and just like chatting around about all this. So um, anything before I dive in?
0: No, I think uh, the bit about why you should care, I think, is is that, um, you know, we've talked with Deb Pierre previously, but LTE is, I think, the future of LTE is not just your mobile device, right? Like, this is something that actually could do a lot more. And um, I feel like there's a lot of potential for uh, cool, non-commercial type of things even uh, with this. But uh, this also falls into a little bit of the discussion we've had before about um, and I think with Deb actually about a discussion of should everything be kind of like open and um, and, and mesh, should we move into that and, and the, or, or should it be more structured and um, centralized and, and is LTE centralized or not? So we can, that's some of the stuff we were going to be moving into. That's why I think it's important to get a sense of how we got here.
2: Totally, totally. These are conversations that we have at, up at uh, the University of Washington. Our lab is kind of always chatting about these types of like, is it centralized? Does it have to be? What else could we build? Um, shout out to Deb. Obviously, I like the team at Althea. I work, um, I work really closely with them. I help design a lot of the LTE stuff that they've been running. So like I often end up popping up with um, cool people doing cool projects just to. <laughs> um, so anyways, we're going to, um, I'm going to start, you know, because really this, this podcast is more internet centric. I wanted to start by bringing us back to the 60s. We're gonna do a really, really quick rundown of the internet. The main reason why, um, and I think it's important to kind of call out some of these dates because they give things in context when we have two completely unrelated systems. So um, when we talk about the total beginning of the internet, there's the ARPANET started in 1969. Um, ARPA or DARPA, depending on the political climate, they've added the D on and taken it off like about a half dozen times, but you have this network kind of of universities, and you're um, connecting them all by the late 70s. You've got a couple of dozen nodes. Here's a map of it. Um, a lot of them East Coast, a lot of them West Coast. There's also Hawaii over like a big radio link. I guess it's on there. Yeah, it's that little T. Um, but uh, so this happens, this kind of grows throughout the, the 70s. And um, a couple other really important foundational moments here TCPIP gets invented in a 74 paper by Vint Cerf. Here he is repping the IP over everything T-shirt. Um, it gets formally standardized in the early '80s, and this whole TCP/IP thing really quickly kicks off a ton of innovation. It lets you innovate below the stack, building all sorts of new protocols and like link technologies, and it lets you innovate above the stack, inventing new protocols like mail or DNS or kind of whatever you need. And um, Things start exponentially growing. Personal computers become a thing that helps a lot. Uh, the web becomes a thing, right? And we all kind of know this story. First of um, all, is that Doug in the picture? I didn't. I, I don't. I just wanted to make sure that <laughs> that's not Doug.
3: I, I just have you know that in those days I had bright, I had not gray hair. So.
0: <laughs> that is the only known photo of Vin not wearing a three piece suit.
2: Uh, yeah, I know, right. <laughs> I've met him a couple of times and that man is impeccably dressed always, it's amazing. Especially because he's at like a tech conference, everyone else is usually in a frumpy t-shirt. So it just like doubly pops. <laughs> um, so uh, to kind of wrap up the internet thing, a couple of concepts that a lot of people are kind of familiar with, with the idea of the internet, is you have these different networks and each one can be kind of administered separately. And within a network, each link could be a different physical thing, right? It could be dial up, it could be Ethernet. Um, the network itself doesn't really know what content it's delivering. It's just you have routers and they're kind of made to be dumb and they work on source and destination addresses. You take stuff, you break it up into packets. You know, routers are just sitting here like, okay, this packet is destined for that address. And, um, you know, I'm drilling on these points because the phone system is built pretty differently. Um, and we're going to start kicking over to that. So um, this is an early picture of Leonard Kleinrock, who got the cred for the first message ever sent over the internet, the first message in the ARPANET. Um, he was trying to type login, and he got the letters low out before it crashed. So everyone was like, lo and behold. Um, but anyways, we talk about this as if like this was the dawn of the internet, and before it was like a primordial ooze. But this is totally false. The phone system already existed nationwide. We talk about this like initial message and he called SRIs, like, did you get this message, right? So we have already built a nationwide communications network at this point that is running almost to the point of ubiquitousness that we kind of forget that it exists.
0: Although still uh, even decades later, not available in many tribal areas, just to make sure people have a sense. I mean, uh, uh, there's uh, even um, now I should read an article um, the Shakamee um which are in Prior Lake, Minnesota here, um, have a fantastic amount of wealth at this point from the casino. But even 10 years ago, I think, did not have phone service to everyone on, in a very small area in the tribe because they'd just been uh, l- locked out of that. So, wow. and, um, now
3: note, and now notice also that it's a shrinking network because lots of places are having the copper rip down. So
2: it's getting smaller and smaller. So, Yep. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, you know, like, and even well through the, through the 2000s, and I think even 2010s, they were still connecting people even with just like, plain, like regular copper wire phone service, right? These networks are still running, they're still rolling them out. And there's always, I shouldn't say there's always because that's like a future prediction, but there's, you know, their underserved populations have been underserved for so many, so many ways and on so many levels. That's a lot of why we do the the work we do, Right. It's the same as people were riffing earlier about electric co-ops, and you know we like <laughs> we'll, 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 we won't get on that tangent because this is a this is an LTE talk today. <laughs> but anyways, um, so to give context, we're talking about the internet in the '60s. The first transcontinental phone call, uh, New York to San Francisco, happened in 1915. There's oodles of improvements, um, lots of court cases, lots of technological things. It's all interesting. Um, is incredibly out of scope for this, and I'm the wrong person to talk about it. Um, I always plug The Master Switch. This is a fantastic book, I think. Um, but this is kind of like, you know, the phone system is, is here, it's growing, it's like innovating. And um, like one of the things that kind of blows me away in, in, in the telephone system often, you know, it was designed before the internet. So a lot of the internet ideas kind of came looking at it and saying, we can do better but there's a couple of key concepts in in telephony land and you know as much as i hate like i hate this it was like this big nationwide network right the famous bell monopoly and then they broke them up and they all kind of reconverged anyways which is incredibly frustrating um, but even when it's not a single network it's a much smaller number of them and the network is not based on routers that are just blindly forwarding packets and source and destination addresses and all this great innovation uh, the network's based on physical circuits that are set up between two callers. So you call someone and whether it's a touchstone phone, or it's a rotary, or you have, like, you talk to the operator and they plug you in, there's, like, you know, back, and I think still to this day with what they call plain telephone service, there's a continuous piece of copper wire from your phone that runs all the way to theirs, which still kind of blows me, blows me away, kind of melts my brain a little bit that that's, that that's how it works. Um, but i mentioned all this because these are totally different two incredibly different ways of thinking about communications and um kind of with a brief history of both i think it kind of helps give us context as to uh what what was built with cell phones and why because that's really where i want to spend more of my time talking
0: yeah let me i I didn't want to jump in and ruin your surprise but I, i i think what's interesting is your disbelief that the the engineering required to have that copper line continuously connected. When all of the engineers for whom that was just like, you know, Monday, um, there had no belief. They 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 fundamentally believed it could not work to have a system that would work if you broke messages up into packets. And then every you have this you know, decentralized approach in which anyone could forward the packet or not. And they could just decide to throw it away, um, you know, and and the idea that that would then re- result in the the kind of system that we have today, like, I think it was a very uphill battle. And even, even, you know, I'd say like seven or eight years ago, I was involved with people who are probably still out there insisting that this system did not work because of the freedom of different nodes to, you know, behave in ways that uh, would not be helpful for the rest of the system.
2: Well, it's, um, these voices are still quite prevalent today. And I think, um, you know, a lot of this is res- is reflected even in the LTE and 5G specifications. Like I talked to telecom engineers and I'm like, oh, check it out, just send it to a router. And it's like, what? Like, you can't do that. Like, well, what about quality service? What about this? And they start like giving all these panicked what ifs. And you know, anyone who's grown up in like a like when I learned computer networks of TCP IP, and you're like the routers figure it out, don't worry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if Doug wants to share anything, but I mean, I'm sure you've you've seen you saw a lot of those fights over the years.
3: Uh, I when i started in telephony we still there were still places i actually my first client still had a switchboard like on the screen there i mean it was you know a lot of that stuff didn't die till the to the 70s it's amazing
2: so yeah totally um man i was gonna rip something off of the uh oh just the uh, um yeah same idea just these totally different <clears throat> paradigms right and it's it's crazy to watch these two di- different ways of, of seeing the world kind of conflict and argue and the assumptions and stuff that they bring where they, you talk to someone and like, well, how will you guarantee X and Y? And you're like, like, dude, it's, it's, it's a switch. It's gonna work. I, I can't, like, you know, these are, you know, like a lot of the theory about using datagram routing and like, it, you know, how stuff's gonna get there and packet switching, a lot of great math theory that's like in the 70s and early 80s. And you're like, this has been settled for 50 or 60 years, but just, just different approaches, right? And we'll, and we'll talk a lot about that as we get a little bit more as we get through the generations cool let's do it um great so uh we're in this copper wire system and early 1980s we start seeing the first self cell-, cell phone networks and um you know this is the 80s so we're talking car phones we're talking you know these like you know head-sized bricks um and they don't really do um i shouldn't say that they don't do a lot because wireless calls are impressive right especially when when you've built a copper wire network but the cell phone the cell phone network's the first G is basically just a one-hop wireless extension to the rest of the, the publicly switched telephone network. So it's, you know, these telephone guys, they've built a copper network. They're proud of it. Some of the copper goes to wireless, you know, to like a radio that shoots it out to your phone. But aside from that last hop, everything else is just the regular phone network built out of copper runs the same way, uh, you know, the end. And that's not meant to be... That's not meant to poo-poo it. Um, and as a side note here, when we talk about cell networks, this is a diagram from like some of the first um, some of the first theoretical papers on this, and they look like um, they look like biological cells. Is where the name comes from. And when we talk about cell networks specifically, we're referring to you've built a bunch of different radio towers and they're coordinated and they're using different frequencies so that they're not using the same frequency too close together. And then you can reuse them after there's enough space. And you model them out typically using. Back in the math theoretical days, they used hexagons, which is why it ends up looking like this. Um, a big part of the initial goal was covering people making phone calls on trains in France. So they have to do handoff and stuff, and they have to be, you know, at, they've always had to support like freeway speed, basically, which is, you know, impressive when you think about going from one Wi Fi hotspot to another or whatever. And of course, you're going to have glitches in your call. Um, so 1G is okay, cool. That's like really close to the phone networks. And then uh, 2G is where things start really, cell phone networks really take off and become like a like a thing in and of themselves, like a capital a capital T thing. Um, the first 2G networks were launched in 91. They grow through the 90s. And there's a ton of incremental improvements. Um, they go from analog voice signals to digital. There's a ton of software controlling the network. They add authentication and sometimes encryption of a signal. Um, but... One of the most important shifts here is that the cell cell network is now its own thing. It can stand alone. Um, and so you can start doing things like cellular only features, right? Because one cell phone calls another, you're starting to see the rise of like nationwide networks. Phones are getting cheaper, so more people have them. You can start rolling out things. It's not gonna, in, in one G, you're just gonna break the copper wire network if you try to send something like a text. It doesn't even make sense. It's an analog, it's a voice network only. But you've got the cell phone only network and you start adding software to um, voicemail, you do texts, you do, um, uh, there's like all sorts of weird software things that people do. You can make like text menus, network can do stuff like text one, you know, like text this to opt in or opt out. Like you can start putting software and kind of logic in, in this, in this network. Um, there's, let's see, um, a lot of the software in 2G, it's kind of, it's kind of the, um the main cell cellular industry becomes a thing. And um, uh, a lot of the software is designed incredibly complexly. I'm going to skip having a diagram of a 2G network software. It's like 11 or 12 different pieces of software that are really complex and they're all talking to each other. And it's it's architected pretty poorly, but it hits the requirements of the network. Um, 2G itself, this is actually important. It's standardized in just four bands. There's 850, 900, 1800, and then 1900 megahertz um so most of these are owned by a nationwide incumbent so you can basically have you're kind of limited in the sense of you can have like four operators and then like you know you're done um but in terms of the spectrum usage it still is it's incredibly efficient and i think oftentimes me and uh steve song have had some chats about this where you for barely any spectrum we're talking 200 kilohertz a call you can get voice service out to people. And I still think this is almost like the apex of how much spectrum you need and how much social utility you're like adding to it, especially you can do texts and stuff too. Um, And so 2G, I think is like incredibly socially revolutionary as a thing and still serves a huge chunk of the world today. Um, And even in the US, uh, Verizon ran their 2G network until 2020, Uh, T-Mobile just shut theirs down last year. So these ran for a really long time and and they are still like serving a huge chunk of the world's population. This is not. There
3: are, there are billions still using this. Yes, I mean it's a huge number. Yes. Um, exactly. Yeah, I spent. I had a partner, and we we were buying old AT and T two G cell sites and shipping them overseas and setting them up because they they couldn't get them fast enough. So. Yep.
2: For sure, because I think the difference is like. I think internet worldwide internet penetration is like slightly over half of the world's population. I think it might be 54% now or something. But um, phone phone coverage is like basically 90%. So that that difference, that 40% is going to be 2G coverage, right? Because LTE counts as internet access. Um so um so we've got before
0: we go to before we go to 3G, I'm I'm curious. You said the 2G stack is like not well designed. Like, is that just because of how much better it got? Like, was it rushed?
3: Why? why... It it, it was rushed to market. It was rushed to market. They just had, you know, they had these spectrum auctions here in the US. And once they gave those out, everybody wanted to start making money at it because they they went from those 1G car phones, which were ridiculous. And all of a sudden, Pete, there was, they didn't think there would be much demand. You would, you have to go back and find an original 2G business plan. The cell companies didn't think anybody would want this. And, and all of a sudden, they put these out, and everybody like us on here wanted, wanted one at and one. And then they had to rush at the market. It was so they went way too fast, but it worked. I mean, it was awkward, but who cares? You know, don't you
1: know don't yeah. work the good old days when it worked all the time? Yeah. I mean, this is we're making phone calls, that is.
3: Yeah. I mean, the, the good news is it was a complicated stack of software, but it wasn't trying to do anything that was too complex. So, I mean, it, it got it done. So, yeah.
2: So there's also a couple um, uh, like weird other snafus like right now. And I keep I keep meaning to use this acronym, but it doesn't exist because it's 91 and we're talking about 2G. Um, the 3GPP is the group that's in charge of like kind of coordinating all the cellular standards. And they came around in 3G because 2G was coordinated. It was like not really coordinated when they invented no. a lot of the things. So... Um, Even um, I'm the wrong person to know this level of detail, but I've known a couple of people. If you want to start building an open source 2G thing, as the good folks at Osmo.com have done, one of the contradictions you hit is that there's a couple of self-contradictory things inside the spec itself. And so you can't just build some software that'll work with anyone. There's kind of a question of like, well, you know, the Nokia base stations handle this this way, and the Ericsson's one handle it that way. And so you kind of got to make a choice. And so there's weird lock-in and there's like, but this happens again, this was... You know, people were rolling this out in 91, and we learned a ton about protocol and system design since then. And we've also just like, you know, we also now have a group that's kind of coordinating and trying to try to sniff these things out before they get running in production. And then you're like, oh, shoot. <laughs> I think they use like a seven bit byte to encode like text messages it's, it's something really there's a lot of really dumb stuff that came out of 2g
0: <laughs> and we also have a comment from ezra about the uh that nokia phone and how he's leaving it to his grandkids and his will because uh <laughs> it was that
3: good it'll it still be, be working it'll still be working oh, yeah.
1: first of all he still has it
2: is ezra a hoarder i mean we just need to know <laughs> it's indestructible <laughs> all right
0: yeah, if you want one, I'm sure you can find it in landfills all across the United States, unfortunately, <laughs> where it should not be. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead, Spencer.
2: All right. Cool. All right. So we've got these 2G networks. They're great. You can do text and things. Um, wrong word. And, uh, but it's no longer 1991. Um, the internet becomes a thing throughout the 90s, throughout the 2000s. And um, like, that's great. You obviously want you, like the kind of question of can we put internet access in this network becomes an immediate question. Um, And so when you think of 2G to 3G, they do some improvements, they do a bit of re-architecture, but most stuff is the same. They basically just say, we're going to take this network that's really similar to a 2G network and we need to add internet to it. And, but we're still talking about like a circuit switch network that was oriented for phone calls. And so kind of the classic answer, like how, how do you add internet traffic to a circuit switched phone network, you just put a modem in it. And so. This is not exactly like a 56K modem, but this is essentially what they did. You take a 2G network, you kind of duct tape an internet router on the side and you say, cool, have the phones call it, the phones set up a circuit to this internet router, send your data there, the entire network becomes just one hop in the internet. Um, The data rates are are better than 56K, right? They're up to four megabits, I think, in the 3G spec. Um, But this idea is basically the same. Um, Weird piece of trivia, if anyone has ever tried this, this is why in up this is why up through 3g you can't call someone and surf the net at the same time it's the same like you know it's it's using the line for that it's busy you know like you can't interrupt it right like in the house you know you downloaded something and someone makes a call like the classic the classic dial up days right
0: well this was cdma right um or was it before cuz this was i remember when the iphone came out one of the big deals about it because it was on at&t It had um, it wasn't limited, whereas I think all Verizon and T-Mobile or Verizon and Sprint, I think, had the CDMA 3G, which did not allow you to use data while making a phone call. Even then, but I don't know if that's coming up in your presentation. Um, Just a memory that I have.
2: I think even um, I think even so, back in the 2G and 3G, you had the CDMA links, and you had the GSM links, and I think with either one, I'm not sure if I don't think you can do voice and data, or if you did, it would tank the rate so dramatically.
0: I think, um, I think AT&T had just done something around the time the iPhone came out. I don't know if anyone else remembers that, but I just, I recall, and maybe it was the second version of it, but I was, it was like a big deal briefly where like, oh, like I can like put you on speakerphone and I can like find that contact on, in my online book. And then I can say, Kim's nodding.
2: Yeah, no, I totally remember that. Cause I was like, you can multitask on a phone for the first time ever.
3: What I lot remember they did was they actually made two connections to your phone. if I remember, huh?
2: that would would make sense that'd be the only way to do it yeah because only only
0: some carriers had it i I thought at the time yeah not everybody
2: had it yeah because i I remember the opposite i remember someone calling me for directions and i tried to look in the maps and it was like no yeah (laughs) yeah um so anyways this is kind of how we get from 2g to 3g we take a 2g network we rename some of the things we improve them a little bit and we just duct tape a router on the side um and so What's crazy to me often with any of these standards is you have like you have this slow march. Like when something gets standardized and when it starts actually rolling out, um, because the standard was finalized in two thousand one and they start rolling stuff out, right? They've got Blackberries and PDAs and some other kind of like handful of things that I don't even think about. Because when I think about three G, I'm thinking about we just were talking about smartphones. So we've got the iPhone two thousand seven, iPhone three G in two thousand eight. First Androids come out the very end of two thousand eight through two thousand nine. Um, So we have these, we have these phones, right? Everyone's very excited about them and 3G immediately like falls over. Like when people were talking about AT&T, if you guys remember, there was a lot of controversy because the iPhone had an exclusive thing with AT&T, but then AT&T's network was like not keeping up with demand and Apple was really upset about it. I remember like lots of people throwing, throwing a lot of shade back and forth. Um, And, The reason why is because I mentioned you have these kind of gateways, these routers that are internet gateways that every phone has to make a call to. So they become bottlenecks. There's a lot of processing. They start bottlenecking the network. But the other thing is once you start going to data, um, your network traffic explodes. Um, A lot of people don't really appreciate how efficient voice is. and The average phone call is back in 2G. It was 13 kilobits per second. Um, Even now with HD voice, you can get up to like 40 or 50 kilobits per second. And that's for bidirectional. So voice is incredibly low. It's light, and then um, lowest end. Way back in the day, you're streaming YouTube. That's 400 kilobits. You're, you know, it's the equivalent to 30 calls at the same time. So you get right. But isn't isn't there an issue that
0: like the problem with voice is that it's constant, whereas the other stuff is like intermittent, right? So um, is that not play a role in in the weight of it in some ways?
2: Um, No, that's a really great question. This was for like for streaming. You're right that voice is constant, and that's why when you have like a circuit style network that they've built through 2G and 3G, it's perfectly optimized for things like consistent service of phone calls, um, and just gets hammered by, um, you know, because you, you say you're going to look at one web page, right? You have to call this gateway, set up a nice connection, get this all going, stream, you know, or not even stream. Sorry, that's the wrong word. You download like even web pages are going to be a handful of megabytes, so you know the network just got like punched in the face by comparison, right? As a to it was set up to handle however, however many phone calls at like, you know, 13 kilobits each, right? And and then you just start seeing like, so the, the problem is that the data, the volume of data is so outsized compared to phone and everyone's doing this, right? Everyone wants to like use their smartphone to do all sorts of networking things, right? And so um, this kind of segues over. And so so you have a situation like almost immediately after smartphones launch, which is you've built this big cellular network. It's circuit switched and it's designed for phone calls, but you're just getting slammed with internet traffic, and the scale is ridiculous. Uh, websites are getting bigger and more bloated. Um, your your network is like screaming at you; it's just redlined all the time, and um, you know, like just you have this inversion of things, right? Um, because again, we talked about this earlier. There's this internet way of like datagrams and packet switching, which scales pretty well for this kind of stuff um, you've kind of chosen the wrong thing. You've optimized yourself for these circuits, which makes sense for 13 kilobit voice calls. Um, and so people at this point, it's also, you know, we're talking the mid to late two thousands. So you're seeing all these scalability issues, but you also have a lot of insight from, from the internet, right? We're starting to enter like the cloud era. There's so much research. There's a lot of computer science. There's, we've talked about scaling these things and this is where, um, Part of the, before I really started digging into the LTE part, this is kind of the main impetus, kind of the origin story here is we're going to take the stuff that went from 1G to 2G to 3G and we've kind of been adding cruft on it. We're going to start with a clean slate and we're going to start also with the understanding that internet data is going to be the bigger, um, the really more more important and heavier load on this network than, than voice calls.
0: And Spencer, can I ask like, if I recall correctly and I've spent a long time since I went into this, the the actual standards and things behind like what we call 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G, there's actually like multiple standards within there, right? I mean, it's actually like 18 or 19 is 5G, I think, right? And so like there's actually like different things that are going on within what we would say is 1G. There's actually like multiple different innovations within there.
2: Uh, yes. Absolutely. And, um, you know, this is classic cellular land. They have like 50 different acronyms for everything. And so the Gs are actually defined based on speed. Like, all right, if you can provide this much, then your network is 3G versus like 4G versus 5G. And so that's almost a completely different vertical stack than over here, there's all these technologies where you have like GSM, then you have like, there actually were some ways to do data in in 2G. It's like, you know, edge. And then there was a um, GPRS, they pronounce it Jeepers. And then there's like, you know, 3G, and then there's like LTE and LTE advanced. And there's all these like other dumb things, right? in In these iterative releases. But you're, but you're spot on. And then the ones that we call a certain G is just based on how much speed it can theoretically, I think theoretically more than actually, but that's these two closely related yet totally unrelated bonds of like speeds and also technologies used. It's pretty unhelpful to be honest. Okay, okay.
1: who all has rocked Edge and GPRS? I'll never forget using that. I thought it was the most amazing thing at the time. Data on your phone. You could play snakes and do texting, like, you know, to get an A or C, I had to press the number one three times. Although oh, these were the days, you know, kids will never understand the pain. <laughs> Well, I just,
0: yeah, and, and I don't know if you got into it, Travis. I was never into texting at that point, but like friends of mine, the T9 algorithm, like they would just be sitting there talking with one person, and like with their other hand, like under the table, would be like texting someone this like message in T9 because they oh, got so used to
1: it. People were so good at that on that Nokia. Yeah. It, texting, the first time I saw it, I was overseas, and people used it like crazy in yeah. Europe. And it was, there was no, there was nothing here. But then, obviously, it kind of took off from here. Those of us all blue text today understand. You know. <laughs> we have a few green textures on the show, but
2: we don't like to mention them. We yeah. don't like to mention them. Moving
1: along, moving along. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um. All right. So I mentioned the G is based on speeds, not technologies. So LTE stands for Long Term Evolution. In this context, I think is like like the whole goal is to kind of give context around that name. So we're gonna redesign the cellular network and we're gonna focus around uh, broadband, broadband internet speed, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna dip our toes into packet switch routing, which has like only been around since you know 74, right? It's this, this new untested technology. We're telcos and we're kind of insecure. We're gonna dip our toe into packet switching. And so the network is gonna be based around primarily around IP addresses. Um, there's some things in the standards where we have better codecs now, so you can do more with the same amount of spectrum. We're also going to standardize bigger amounts of spectrum so that we have access to hundreds of megabits of speed because we need to start talking about broadband. And, um, but the biggest thing is we're going to re-architect this stuff around datagrams. So back in the previous Gs, your phone kind of has an identifier from its SIM card or like whatever. I don't know if 1G had SIMs and it just says like you, you get this, you get this amount of channel to call this person, and now we don't do that. I mean, what we do now is a phone joins the network and says, "Cool, here's your IP address," and so we're we're using IP addresses now as almost like a primitive for all these things in the network to talk to each other, which is which is great and also is like very you know, um, this is telcos playing around with new technology in 2009. Um, so to this point. Um, phones in LTE, every phone has an IP address, they send and receive data through the network, and there's all sorts of other services, like, you know, the network still does voice, still does text, does all those other things, but all these services are just provided on top of this base IP network. So when we talk about voice LTE, it's really just VoIP with a bit more optimizations. Um, In my eyes, when I look at it from a technical perspective, I joke that a lot of, with this re-architecture, cellular companies basically have shifted from a telecom that also provides internet service. They've kind of turned themselves into an ISP that also provides voice and text and telecom services. Um, they are still regulated like a telco. This is not an opinion that the regulators share. And we'll talk a little bit more about all those regulatory differences, I think, in some of the later slides. Uh, cool, so, um, so I mentioned how you know, LTE is really like starting to become like an ISP-centric technology, but um, it's also still a telecom technology, right? It's designed by cellular people. It's come almost completely out of the uh, like a, a background of cellular telephony, just kind of select, you know grabbing a couple of ideas from networking. So when phones, so when phones make a call, for example, they get a different radio resource. We put them on a different radio channel. We reserve it just for them. We prioritize the traffic. We say, all right, this. Like, this little radio channel is going to get all the priority. It's going to go through no matter what. Um, And because LTE is a telco technology, it's designed for telcos, it's important to mention that there's a lot of regulations and a tremendous amount of um, oversight for uh, telephone networks. So cell networks have really high uptime requirements. And these can come almost with, like, sometimes criminal, like, legal and criminal penalties, depending on how bad you screwed up. Um, they're aggressively regulated, you know, with the, uh, with the telecom act of 1996. And, you know, this is not like some sort of, uh, I know we often like to complain about the lack of regulatory oversight, but um, the telecom act has so much more teeth than whatever non-regulatory existence that the internet lives in. Um, Cause over here in the wild west, you know, we kind of, it's the internet way, you have routers, packet switching kind of best effort approach. And the telco way is, the Exact opposite, it's you know, like it's the almost like the Nazi Germany version of like there are guarantees and we will do this. And like it's it's an incredibly, um, you know, these are two different types of networks, but they've also come up with these two different philosophies and approaches towards service, and so it's a wildly different context. And I always feel like, well, and, I, and,
3: well, I, there's a, and there's a big downside to that because when they first introduced LTE with that concept, once a cell site got X number of hundred people on, it wouldn't take the next call because they, they were all the channels were signed out. And so any kind of emergency happened or whatever, and 90% of the people couldn't get a phone call. And if you got on one, you never hung up because <laughs> <laughs> you would keep your call forever. And so, I mean, that was the big downside to it. Cause like, I only want to use voice. I want to use those tiny little packets, but I'm tying up a whole channel on this cellular side. It, it was really a stupid design, but, that's what they did so yeah
2: for for a long time until they actually rolled out volte um lte networks ran alongside a 2g network and they would kick you to 2g to make the calls yeah
0: the other thing I wanted to throw in, you mentioned this several times, but this this like the internet way versus the telco way. Uh, what, if people ever see the term nethead versus bellhead? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you you come across those people who kind of had that deterministic like circuit switched mentality versus those who were more of the the freewheeling internet way. And and you know, I think it is important to note that like. One of the fears that some people have, which I think is misplaced, is that government will overregulate in the Internet. And I think we don't want that to happen. We don't want a government body to decide how long queues should be or, you know, like when it's okay to discard packets or things like that. Right. We really want to keep that a decision made by like engineers uh, and, and multiple stakeholders, probably.
3: But there's never been any talk of anyone wanting to right. do
0: that. Right. Yeah. Right. That's not a danger, but it, nonetheless, yeah. like it is worth noting, like that is the sort of thing <sighs> that government has done in the past for some technologies, and we would not like to see that here.
1: Didn't Ted Cruz just say that we were going to regulate it?
0: <laughs> Ted Cruz uh, would like to raise money by by stoking fears that we're about to do that.
2: It's like, do you often listen to Ted Cruz, though? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, as a as a functioning human being, I do
2: not. <sighs> Um, Yeah, and something that's really interesting here when we talk about regulation is that it exists in kind of multiple tiers because even when people talk about regulating the internet, I think it often comes up in this like common carrier, Title II type legislation. And it's important to mention that like, that is, I think a lot of that legislation centers around like price discrimination and like kind of like FTC type stuff, which is all around like ripping people off. Are we talking about like making sure ISPs are providing the speeds? All this is like, over here in Moneyland and the Telecom Act is like if you drop too many calls, you will go to prison. It's like it's like it's like very it's much more severe in terms of the uptime requirements and the subsequent and the correlating uh, like penalties. Like it's just it's a wild escalation compared to even Yeah, I mean we, should, yeah, let's we t- should
3: let's talk about how weird this is. So I'm on my cell phone. I just get out of my car and I'm walking into my house and I'm on a cellular network. I walk and that's a fully regulated process there. I walk into my house. It jumps on the Wi-Fi completely unregulated. But if I but if I use the voiceover IP on there to call somebody, the other end of that call is regulated. I mean, it's really nuts what we've done. to this. Thing.
0: Right. But also, I, I think it's worth we could potentially have Harold Feld on sometime to talk about oh, yeah. how the regulations have changed because yeah. states have a lot of authority over this. And some of those regulations that you're talking about, Spencer, used to be that, like, after a major storm, you had to restore service within X number of hours. And now AT&T can just say, we're never restoring service. You're done. Uh, and and so like, there's a major shift in they, how we tra-
3: how we approach Verizon, Verizon tried that on Fire Island, remember.
0: Yeah. Right. And we'll see this, I think, with uh, in Florida, with uh, that hurricane that just came through yep. or the next one that's yep. coming through, because Florida expressly gave AT&T that power to decide where and when it would rebuild, if ever.
1: Right. jeez. Oh, well, I mean, if, if, if this regulation is that strict for dropping calls, people go to jail. They should it be going to jail every single day at my house. Nobody,
3: nobody ever went to jail for it. <laughs> yeah,
1: I was going to say. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> it, it sounds no, I, it sounds good, ho, ho, but
3: however, pe- however, people did get some fines. I mean, there were there's yeah. been yes. So
1: I, I I can drop a I can drop a call every five six times a day if you want. Who should we send to prison, Chris? <laughs> yeah.
2: Go ahead, Spencer. Um, yeah, sure. I was gonna I was gonna riff a little bit more on um something that's really fuzzy to me because what we're seeing right now, and um, like, I think, I think about this kind of stuff all the time because I've heard rumors of, uh, like you see, you know, there's always a question of like, in my mind, if telcos more and more telcos are using stuff like VoIP. And so it's like, why well, are they an ISP? What, what is the telco? Like, like, I have all these questions, right? And um, if anyone knows a really smart telecom lawyer, I'd love to help them, have them explain this to me because I have, I have questions around like, cool, like does WhatsApp count? I hear no. What if they provided this, this? Like, there's so many different. Yeah, we can we can talk about that
0: in a future show. We could bring on Harold Feld, yeah. who I think would be one of the best to talk about that.
2: Yeah, because yeah, it gets really it gets really fuzzy, you know, really fast. And I've heard rumors of, um, like, you know, I had a, um, I had some colleagues who were like at Facebook and kind of involved with some efforts. And I heard rumors of like, you know, you're inventing stuff and it's cool and you're doing connectivity and it's going cool. And then all of a sudden you get a little bit too close to like are we doing something that might look like a telco thing? And like an army of lawyers comes like running down and it's like, don't do this. You can't do this. (laughs)
3: um,
0: And sometimes I think that's because of overregulation, and sometimes it's an overreaction to existing reasonable regulations.
3: Well, it's actually also an overreaction to copyright laws, unfortunately. You know, all these folks have copyrights or patents, I mean,
2: patents on these various technologies.
3: You just don't not
2: want to touch them. So, yes. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great analogy. Um yeah. I know at Apple, the penalty learning that the penalties were so much worse for willful infringement, there was a company wide policy of like do not read any patents ever. <laughs> right. Right. Um
0: next slide. There we go.
2: Yeah, let's do it. All right. So um we're kind of we kind of riffed on a lot of these notes, but um, in kind of the, the bellhead kind of telco world, right? Um for them to hit these service guarantees they need to have a ton of control over the invisibility into the network, right? Um, And so they need to know if they're going to prioritize phone calls so they don't drop them. They need to know what a phone call is, right? They need to like treat it separately and they need to like know when you're calling someone versus you just like, your phone is just sending packets, you know, YOLO, who cares? Um, So a lot of these kind of needs and these regulatory stuff are why everything feels so complex and in in my opinion, feels like over-engineered, but these, you know, they're also trying to hit these really hard metrics. And I see it again, like we've been riffing on this, I see it as kind of control freaky and it's just wild to hit these two different attitudes. And so we kind of talked a little bit about quality of service, right? They're really trying to um, keep phone, they're trying to prioritize phone calls by putting them on separate channels still. Um, Another example that I still think is really interesting is emergency 911 traffic. Um, I don't know if this is what you meant earlier when someone was talking about there's an emergency and everyone's placing calls, but even SIM card or not, you know, telco is required to take 911 calls and route them and to prioritize it to the degree of like, cool, if your network's busy, kick someone else off. So you have all sorts of like features, which are and they're interesting to me, and this is also because because I've done some work in telco land and also in networking land. In our lab, we sometimes talk about things like, what would emergency service over a Wi-Fi network look like? Like, how can you do that today? Like, we, we ask all sorts of weird questions by just inverting things. We talk all the time about like, you know, what if there's no cell service and you have know, someone's with Starlink way out in the here? Like, you know, can I get and his, his Wi-Fi is password protected, but I need to get on and place a call? Like, it's, you know, you see, you start seeing this big merge in different services and stuff like that. And but I highlight a lot of these things that often get kind of taken for granted, even as much as I hate, um, as much as I hate a lot of the control freak attitudes that you see in in Telco um, policies and regulations and even in the standards that are built. um so LTE is kind of an ice peak technology it's kind of a telco technology um and i often think about it this is kind of the the biggest analogy that i find helpful is brackish water is basically where fresh water comes into salt water and they're super unique ecosystems they change salinity based on the tides multiple times a day I like how much salt water is in like that riverbank and you see really weird creatures. A lot of there's a lot of like uh, plants and animals that can only live in areas like this because it's just so specific. And this is my favorite LTE analogy, just because I like water and being outdoors. <laughs> um, moving a bit forward though, um, because you mentioned having Deb on a couple of times, and in general, ISPs have started to talk about LTE, which is you know I'm sure. The, the interested audience here, and so the interesting thing about LTE is that I mentioned that it's per, you know it's kind of oriented, it's architected kind of a little bit more. It's it's packet switched, it's based on IP packets, and so you take a handset that never moves, like that's easy. You take a handset that never makes a phone call, like sure, right? And now you're basically talking about a hotspot. You take said hotspot, you give it a much stronger antenna, and now you're talking about consumer premise equipment and lot well, of ISPs now, especially smaller wireless ones, have been rolling out LTE just like with a number of technologies. Um, there's now products meant specifically for this. We've got a nice little buy sell CPE on this slide. You can mount it on a house. You can totally get it 100 megabits. You can, and it's pretty reliable. And you can start really taking advantage of some of like the um the higher like the higher bandwidth channels. You can start taking advantage of like like a lot of the optimization and a lot of people aren't doing this, but you can have a tremendous amount of control and all, there's all these little knobs you can twiddle if you really, if you want to. So I have a question. Where do you
0: launch
1: it or where do you attach it? If it's on a dome, I'm just questioning. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: I don't know. Uh, That was well before smartphones. Okay. (laughs) I don't think we had internet. (laughs) But I also lived with a bunch of crazy hippies at that time. People I like, didn't want microwaves because they thought those would give you cancer too. Was
1: it, Got con- it was it considered a peace camp or what was it considered?
2: Um, it was. Don't
0: answer that. I um I was just enjoying whenever I go back and um uh, watch the old movies when they called the microwave science ovens, which hey. is a
1: way way better term it's for just, the microwave. Amazing. Come on, baby, in a dome. I love it. This is the greatest ever.
2: Um. <laughs> So actually those domes at UC Davis, you can look them up. Um, They were in the seventies. They built a bunch of experimental housing. It was like supposed to run for like a five-year project, but they were so well engineered that they just kept, they just lasted forever. And you could tell the the university admin super hates that they're still around. And everyone's like, no, our lease is still valid. Like you have to like, let us keep living here. They're still there today. Yes. Oh, that's epic. All right.
1: Hang on. I got to Google this.
0: Yeah. UC Davis domes. (laughs) Travis is going to be driving through there next year. Yeah. Oh cool.
3: I was there about six years ago. They're still there, Travis. So,
0: yeah. uh, let's see the <coughs> next slide. Sorry? Is there a next slide?
2: Yes. Um so uh a lot of there's been a lot of talk about LTE, I think. So when you
0: say let's just talk about when you say building a network, like I mean I, I kind of took for granted that you could use LTE to build networks. So when you say you couldn't do it six years ago, why couldn't you do it six years ago? That Eight is ago. this slide. Um, oh, okay.
2: <laughs> so yeah, if you wanted to do this in the mid-2010s, like sure, theoretically possible, great. Uh, probably forget it. And a lot of stuff has changed. Um, so um, in, I guess in here, I started with hardware. Um, in the last handful of years, a lot of like, like lower budget per- manufacturers have entered the game and have started bringing like, LTE radios um, to market. And it's had a huge effect on prices. Um, a lot of radios now at the lower end can start under $1,000. When we bought them in 2017, we were looking at 5,000 or 5 or 6,000 each. But um, somehow, due to patents, due to some of the patents in 2G, 2G radio is still retail for like 20 to 30K. Um, So there's been a lot of market competition that is like like prices have sank like a stone. I feel like I've just watched the zeros fall off them. So that's a huge game changer in terms of hardware. Um, Software, it's been a similar arc. Um, When we got started, we were going to run this network in Papua. I found an open source, some open source LTE software that was like 80% done and 20% broken. And so I also asked around to get bids. I was like, hey, maybe I could buy a license for some core software, but there's not really a market for that back in the day because it was just telecoms buying it or rolling their own. So I think the cheapest quote I could find was like 80 or $100,000 or something for a license. And it can scale up to like a million users and like, that's okay, but there's like 500 people in this village. And so my salary was, you know, low enough that I was like, it just makes way more sense for us to fix this existing open source stuff. And that was kind of a grind, it also was rewarding. But um, the software situation to run the network has changed dramatically since then. Like I'm talking about $100,000 licenses and now there's at least two or three open source options that are pretty reliable, work pretty good. We run them in production. So like I'm pleased enough with it. And there's also a bunch of closed source kind of cloud offerings that are like a buck a user a month. So there's like like that market has also just been obliterated, right? We're talking like several zeros have fallen off here, Um, and this also goes hand in hand with, I guess, the last point that it's worth mentioning is, um, and you know, when I'm comparing things to two G, for example, two G had four bands. National telcos are kind of to buy them and use them to provide cellular service. Uh, LTE was standardized in over sixty. There's some that are really low, four hundred megahertz. There's some that are up at like six or eight gigahertz. Um, and so that's made a lot of competition. There's a lot of, you know bands out there, and we've talked a lot about 2.5 or CDRS and 3.65. They, they also make LTE radios that just run in unlicensed 5 gigahertz. Like it feels like bizarro to me. But there's a lot of um, there's a lot of additional bands and a lot of spectrum access as well. So I now, think-
3: remember this was all this was done for the third world. We just happened to benefit from it here. And that's why they got so cheap, right? So yeah,
2: yeah this is true.
3: So the
0: the importance of the spectrum is what is I'm guessing a different parts of the spectrum have different qualities if you're in different areas, but then also you're gonna have access to different parts of the spectrum also, like just legally, right?
3: And different and in different countries, totally different uses of spectrum a lot of times. Yeah. So
0: yeah. And then my other question is what what why is the core software so complicated like is it primarily because you have different stations that can hear different devices and they have to coordinate and like what are all the different things that the core software has to do that's so complicated
2: um great question and i think the the bummer about core software and this is kind of one of my top like bummer notions of lte is you have all these knobs and whistles and all this stuff that the software do, that that the software has to do and so it's really ripe for bugs. And um, and some of the complexities, it's kind of one of these things where you can't, um, what am I trying to say? You, you can't build it 90% of the way and then call it good. Because the, the base station, you're going to buy a commercial base station and it's going to be sending your software all these complex messages and it needs the exact responses back. And there might be stuff like, oh, yeah, the only reason we have all that complex features is to support mobility. And we know that we're never going to have any mobility in our network. We're just like mounting things on houses but the radio doesn't know that it still needs to know the exact like you know um like the exact identifiers how we're going to identify this handset there's really hardcore encryption so you need to do a ton of work with like sim cards and keys and all that and that's not because that's not because you need it to be that ridiculously over engineered it's because that's what the thing is going to send you to be compliant with the specification
3: Again, remember these core softwares are developed by cell phone companies. So, I mean, you could start from scratch and do a way simpler
2: one, but no one's going to do that. So, um, well, so the maybe Maybe. we've we've built a a pretty straightforward one. Um, I would say it's engineered as well as it could be, and it's very straightforward, but the spec is very complicated, and that's what you can't get around unless you're also changing radios and handsets and things, yeah. Um it's worth mentioning, the other thing that I think is worth mentioning that so you
0: should build a, you should build your uh, an LTE that does not support mobility, and call it stable LTE. <laughs> like it, right? There you go.
2: Um, so uh, for a while, there was some mobility stuff we couldn't get working in Papua. So when people walked from one side of the village to the other, it would just like the phone would cut out and reconnect as it changed base stations. But we kept giving them the same IP address, so they didn't notice. It was wonderful. Um, <laughs> But um, oh man, I was gonna say something along the lines of Corsa. Oh, the other thing that I think is kind of both a blessing and a curse, and this is kind of a rant I have actually about the whole notion of carrier grade, is the stuff is designed. It's like pretty hard to set up. There's all sorts of weird roadblocks. But then once you get everything running smoothly, and you're like, yeah, victory. It's all built as if you're gonna scale up to. It's intending for you to scale up to tens of thousands of units, or like millions. So it feels like this huge amount of lift. And if you're trying to support all these small networks, it's like lift after lift after lift. But if you want to take one network and grow it, by the time you've got all this stuff lined up, it's like wham, bam, plug and play. Great, get another one. Let's go. Like You can really grease the the rollout. But that's often not the model, I think, of like smaller ISPs that have a network that's maybe half built and want to add like two towers. Like if you want to add like one or two towers, you're doing all the work uh, up front, even if you're never going to, take the reap the benefits of that scale and that's just kind of embedded in the way the specifications and things are intended and designed it's like it doesn't have to be that way it's just as it just as as it shook out
0: Mm -hmm. we had to say goodbye to kim at the top of the hour we got a little bit of time left
2: oh cool this is my last that was my last thing
0: oh there you go so uh, usually here's where we find out travis has had like three questions and he's been waiting to ask them
1: well, you know, I want to bring up the uh, big elephant in the room. You know, thirteen G that's going to kill fiber. So, how's that spec coming along? Um, no, I, I, I it's 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 interesting. You know, I think um, <clears throat> the adoption is just amazing to me. Every person you see, everywhere they go, every car, you know, you know, utilizing it is it, it, it's, it's quite amazing how far the technology has come. I'm just I'm not real sold on it being an ultimate. Somebody's streaming media platform to their home, uh, due to the lack of mounting options there generally are in major cities. But um, you know, as as far as a um, you know a phone technology, you no, know, it's not bad. But you know, what's interesting is remember growing up with a a typical one FB phone line, how reliable those things were. Yeah. You'd sit on the phone forever and ever and ever. So sometimes I think we move forward, but. Sometimes I think we've moved back a little bit in, in, our, in our move here. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting, but I would ask, what is your favorite open source backend?
2: Um, um, do you have one that you like? Yeah, there's um, Open5GS is one that I work on. I'll okay. always plug it. It's great. It's, um, uh, so the Osmocom people with Harold Welt and all them, That's um, they have started committing to it, which in my mind is a great sign that it's kind of, a, everyone's kind of converging around it. If okay. you look around, there's um, the Magma project was started by some great folks, um, like good friends of mine that are, that w- it, it was at Facebook, now it's Linux Foundation. I think it's a little bit more spin it up and scale. It's, it's got a really specific use case, so it, it often doesn't really fit um, the stuff I do as much, um, but I like the designers of it a lot, even though they're not, um, they've, they've since moved on. Um, yeah, but those two, yeah, I'll always plug open 5GS, which has oh, now been getting yeah. into 5G, hence the name. They used to be called Next EPC, I think, but then there was a commercial version, like da da, da, da. Yeah.
1: No, thanks. I'll, I'll look at that one. I, I've, I've never used it before because that's always been the big hang-up about deploying this, especially for the Wisps is, you know, to hang up a, um, you know, Cambium ePMP platform, it's like three clicks of a button and you're running, you mm-hmm. know, but, you know, to get a core up and going and operating and, it, you know, it, it takes work. Yeah, it, it takes some work.
2: Yeah, and I think all the, it's tricky because, you know, like I'm constantly talking with people about that and I want to support um, ISPs running their total, like just owning all their own everything. And then that crashes against, all right, this is so hard. Tell you what, we should set up a public core and just let anyone connect to it. Yeah. And, then you think and you're like, are we just becoming one, another one of those like like are are we now just becoming the control freaks that are scaling right? Because you want to support people in their traffic, and so there's.
1: I'm telling you, it would be a good service for the guys just getting into it as they learn and evolve. Because I think the core tends to scare people off, you know, in the yeah. beginning, and I I, th- I think it, it shouldn't. But I do like the fact that when you are hopping LTE cell, you use the same trick we use on Wi-Fi. Just give them the same address, and the customer never knows. They miss a ping or two, and off they go. So that that uh, that's the old trick we use
2: with Wi-Fi roaming. Well. So the uh, funny thing about that, actually, because when we, this network that we were building out in Papua, we could never get the, the voice side of things to work for a large number of reasons. It's an entirely different conversation. but um, And I really wanted to support voice and text so we could do things like so that I could text people in the network, um, like asking them to stop crashing it. But, um, but anyways, uh, we kept saying, all right, guys, like we've got the network running, but we're still trying to figure out voice and text. And no one cared because everyone was just on WhatsApp, anyways. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah We only use WhatsApp. It's like, okay, great. That if you're happy, I'm happy. And so by keeping the same IP address, you know, the calls actually, you know, like actual voice <clears throat> would drop, but WhatsApp ones wouldn't. Ironically. keep
3: on working,
2: right? Um, yeah. And then that's really like, I don't know. We build all these funky networks because we're running handsets, but we're not doing voice. And you know, I mentioned it earlier, but then this question of like, are we a telco? Is always like. I don't know what is a telco today. <laughs> is WhatsApp? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Doug, do you have
2: a question?
3: Yeah, I was just say WhatsApp has got to be the most used app in the world. Oh, it's crazy. I mean, everybody uses it. I mean, third world—that's what every single person uses. Yeah,
1: so. and you don't—you don't run into a lot of Americans that do. But you know, no. if you want to talk to any of your friends overseas,
2: WhatsApp. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, you know, they are, uh, um, I, I read some research years ago that basically kind of compared and WhatsApp, you know, because especially it's like, it's been, it's been used, it's become really so popular in so much of the developing world context. They are substantially better even than 2g when it comes to optimizing over low bandwidth, Mm -hmm. like these guys did a bunch of research and they're like, man, these guys are the, the total Kings of getting stuff across in like really, really constrained contexts.
1: Because they have to you know when you're, yeah. when you're out when you're out in the middle of nowhere there's not a lot of bandwidth there. Yeah. So. Yeah.
0: So what is, what's interesting, like in terms of what's coming next, we'll talk more about this in the future in terms of some industry trends, but from a technological point of view, Spencer, like, you know, I think you did a bunch of work with Althea. They mm-hmm. seem like they're trying to get bigger now. And Deb, we wanted to have Deb on the show, but she had a conflict. Um, and so um, that's why she's not here. But I got the sense that some of the stuff that they're working on now is getting even more complicated and maybe pushing you to your limits or like, what is, what exactly is going on there?
2: pushing me to my lens.
0: <laughs> I, thought, I thought like some of the stuff that they're trying to do with LTE, like with the, uh, the core that you are programming and things like that was like, was hitting, you know basically your talent level, your experience level or something like that.
2: It's been fun. Yeah, we've done a lot of like, I've, like I've been building we've, we've been kind of doing this in terms of the LTE side of things, we've been doing like this hybrid core where we've got a lot of the core logic as much as we can up in like in the cloud somewhere. But then all the traffic stays local and gets routed out locally, so that it get ex- so that it's really easier to put it in just like an existing ISP context. This was uh, Travis. This was also going to be my answer for the core of cores of services. You should talk to Deb because like that's that's what we're trying to roll out. So like she can she can hook you up. We can do this. Um, so if I'm
0: trying to understand, is that like? because I really have no sense of how this actually works, but basically like the core is able to like orchestrate things without having to be in the middle of everything.
2: Like, is that a way of saying it? Like what's the minimum amount of core logic that we, that we need, um, or like what's the minimum that we need in the network at the edge and as much as possible, put it up in in the cloud or somewhere where we can just keep iterating it and fixing on Mm it. Um, That stuff's been really fun. We, uh, we got, the stuff that needs to run at the edge of the network we got that really really slim and then we actually ported it over over to OpenWRT, so you can run things on there and that's always kind of like a fun like mashup of like a different world that i used to poke around in grad school <laughs> but,
3: but this is where you bump against telco see in telco one of their key concepts has always been let the backbone go down local survivability stays and people can continue to talk to each other you move the core to the cloud and, and the local's gone too. So that, that's just a different philosophy. I mean, they, that was all, they almost started the whole network from that perspective, because it was built around those one little operator center with 20 plugs in for a farming community. Mm-hmm. That could keep on working no matter what
2: the hell else happened, right?
3: So, it's, yeah. It's really interesting per-
2: to think about yeah. how we scale resilience though, because you're right that the telcos were designed in this way to start, like to allow local chunks to still run. But this is also because we're talking about one company looking at things nationwide as opposed to like, you know, an ISP that is either all up or all down, but it's smaller than that local, uh, what was the central office scale for the telcos anyways? So it's like, it's just, there's so many questions of where you slice the pie, right? How top heavy, or bottom heavy it is. Any other questions?
1: Well, I'll leave you with this thought. If you ever do underground work for building a fiber network and you accidentally hit one of the bundles of twisted pair coming out of a CO from <laughs> that was called in the early 1900s. Wow. And if you ever see them fix it, it is amazing. Those, t- all those tiny little strands in there. Yeah, all different,
3: different
0: colors. colors. So are you just out. familiar with that or did one of your crews hit one?
1: Uh, whoops. Yeah, we hit one one time. It, it wasn't marked, but wow you know, talk about, you know, you got to commend the people though. That was installed in the early 1900s and, you know, still, that thing ran strong for years and years and years. So I uh, I commend them. I hope the stuff we're putting in does, has the same life cycle to it.
0: Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Spencer, anything else that uh, that comes to mind before mm-hmm. we wrap
2: up? Uh, no, this, this was great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Super interesting. Yeah, very yeah, good. Thank you.
0: Yeah, it's uh, I think it's always it's interesting because I think a lot of us have like different pieces of this and then just getting different people together to to remember uh, some of the different aspects of it. Um, It's it's wild. Absolutely. Cool. Uh, We are looking at coming back uh, next week, I believe, for one of our regular shows. Uh, talking about uh, current events in the news. I believe that Anna Gomez is the fifth commissioner now officially. Um, You're having her having, on the show, right? Uh, no, I uh, I would not expect Anna <laughs> Gomez to be interested in coming on this show. <laughs> um and I, uh, I think we'll have a lot to talk about next week. Unfortunately, we'll be doing it without Doug um, because uh, Doug will be uh, busy and uh, we'll find another person to step in. Um, if anyone else knows a uh, 150-year-old Grateful Dead fan that spent a lot of time in telecom. <laughs> I, was perhaps, polka, I was
2: like, I know just the dude.
0: <laughs> perhaps with uh, Santa Claus aspirations. Uh, <laughs> we um, will be back. And, um, and then at some point, I don't know if it'll be in September, or it'll be in October, but Spencer, I'll be in touch with you, um, to see if we can, um, you know, schedule another show to talk about what the future of LTE, I want to spend a little bit of time. I really want to get like Mike Dano on from light reading, uh, to talk a bit about kind of like all the things we were lied to about, like, you know, for the past four years or so from the the telcos, like the, the wireless companies about how, Oh, like 5g this. And you know, it would be amazing if we have Neelay Patel on, I don't know if I here hear, um, was um, uh, familiar with The Verge, The Vergecast, but every now and then he just goes off about like just the lies and the lies and the lies That's about what we're going to do with five G and the robot right. surgery and and all of this different stuff. Um, in fact, in the show last week, I think they were talking about there's a video about a banana. Uh, Having a robot surgery performed on it as a demo and it was not done over wireless it turns out even though that's what the the lies about it say. So
2: I, um, I got so tired of the hype train I want to make a joke talk that's like will 5g cure cancer or cause cancer right yeah no but i mean the thing is is that like you know even if it caused it it
0: could resolve it right away because of the robot doctors in the in the cars on the freeways doing surgery everywhere and no one ever talked to (laughs) no one ever talked to anyone from the insurance age from the insurance world to find out like oh like even if this was technically possible, would you do surgery over a, a 5G connection? Like, Hell no, you would not, because if no, the slightest network drops, yeah. Yes.
1: Who's who's paying the patient's family? Like, well, that's yeah, the question. But, it's but, not about the tech. In all fairness though, I'd like an apology for the thousands of conversations I had at banks about how fiber was irrelevant and 5g was going to
3: take over so, yeah yes yeah well because because they watched all the tv commercials yes.
1: exactly
0: yeah so. yeah no it's just ridiculous but i, I think it'd be interesting to find out like exactly what has happened i mean yeah I, I don't read it super closely but i've seen stories about how um you know like at and verizon were lying out where they never made the the, the they, they made these promises and then they never actually purchased the gear that would have allowed them to make, meet those promises they never did any of the steps and it'd be fun to have someone on that could talk about mm-hmm bit about some of that
2: i mean to be fair to verizon they they had their hands full they were busy throttling first responders
0: <laughs> they're in california right I expect them to do everything right <laughs> <laughs> um so anyway uh it's been uh, fun trotting out past memory lane a little bit uh this is ordinarily where i just wait for rye to get set up but i actually have to do it myself um so preparing the outro um, spencer thank you travis and doug thank you so much for joining us uh, thank you, Kim, who had to get on to another event. Uh, but we will be back, I believe, in six days uh, with a show covering the news. Uh, yes, Travis. Or you're just doing this? That's what my son does to me all the time now.
1: <laughs> no, um, no. I was going to say thank you, Mr. Mitchell, for being the host extraordinaire of this episode 79. Yes,
3: and you didn't bomb it. That was awesome. Yes.
1: Well, it's yeah, so cool. and. And we didn't get you riled up but i promise episode 80
3: here it comes it's
0: coming yeah <laughs> it's coming all right um spencer thank you also for all the great work you do for the tribal broadband boot camps and uh folks um Always just come friend. back actually that was the other thing if we had extra time i would love to just hear more about um was it is that where you just oh, were yeah. Yeah, up there in the, on the Arctic Circle. So next trip. time, we'll maybe we'll reserve some. Next time, we'll talk about that some. The challenges oh, wow. of building these networks in the Arctic. Uh, if people want to hear about it, maybe we can get Mark on too. Um, but uh, would be fun. All right, okay. I'm going to clear us out, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you.
1: Thank you.